Here's what we're going to talk about tonight. And we're not going to be in one specific passage of Scripture, but we're going to be in a few. Okay? And so I want you to think about this question for a minute, and then I want you to kind of turn around and discuss it. Can a believer in Jesus Christ be demon-possessed? Okay? Can a believer in Jesus Christ be demon-possessed? All right? That's what I want you to do. I want you to kind of talk about it. You've got 45 minutes, and then we'll answer. No, just... Take a, see, y'all have a good night, all right? When you're done, turn out the lights. No, for, turn around, talk about it. Can a believer in Jesus Christ, a Christian, be demon-possessed? All right, here's what I want to do. I want you to keep that kind of thought process going. I'm going to read you three stories, okay? And then I want you to discuss something else. Janet felt the presence late at night. A few hours after she had drifted off to sleep, her heart beating wildly, she would sense someone in her bedroom, someone vile and menacing. Visibly, no one was there, but there had to be. Every part of her knew it. She felt herself pinned down to the bed. She couldn't move her arms or her legs. She tried to scream, but nothing would come. Finally, after five or ten minutes, the presence would lift and be gone. An incredibly awful dream. Or was it a dream? It seemed so real. Janet would then turn on the light, pull her Bible off the nightstand, and reading the book of Psalms brought her deep consolation. Story number two. Wren had been a Christian for three years. How grateful he was that missionaries had come to translate the Bible into his tribal language. He was exuberant when one of the translators asked him to be a language consultant. Wren worked hard at helping him understand the various nuances of his tribal tongue, For many years he had been hearing voices in his head, but now that he was helping the missionary, the voices had become louder, suggesting hostile things to him. As a translator was sitting at his desk, he would hear a voice speak to him, say, pick up the hatchet and kill the man. No, no, he would exclaim. Where did that voice come from? That was the last thing he wanted to do. He tried to ignore the voices, but they did not go away. They kept telling him, get the hatchet, get the hatchet. The voices tormented him daily, but he kept trying to suppress them and told no one. On Thursday, they were in the office once again working, and Wren rose from his chair to get a drink. One of the voices came loudly with such authority, grab the hatchet and strike him. Wren picked it up, and the voices came with fury. Hit him. Hit him. And Wren did. The missionary was found three hours later, slumped over his desk. Wren was detained and accused of murder. Number three, Mark had a reason to be angry. No one should have treated an innocent child the way his father had treated him. Prone to violent outbursts, Mark resented the fact that he was becoming just like his dad. Coming to Christ had made a big difference. He had not only appreciated God's forgiveness, but the Lord had saved his marriage from certain doom two years earlier. But now things were falling apart. Why couldn't he control his anger? Why did he cross the line and fly into a rage virtually every time he had an argument with his wife? He was always filled with regret when he cooled down and thought about what happened. He knew that it was inevitable for the two people to have an occasional disagreement, and he could maintain control of his emotions up to a point. But then it was like he would experience a sudden rush of crazy-making drug, and he would totally lose it. It felt like something took over and drove him into rage. All right. In light of what you just talked about and the answers you just gave, 
can a Christian be demon-possessed? I want you to talk for a minute about um, what do you think is happening here? Is this a part of demon possession, influence, internal stuff? Are these people believers? Discuss. Yes. True stories. What's that, Miss? We'll talk about that. Okay. So, y'all talk. Talk. Add some discussion. What do you think's going on there? Are they symptoms of typical struggles? Is this an evil of a different sort? All right, let's talk for a second. So what do you think? Can a Christian be demon-possessed? Okay, tell me why. I mean, besides just, no. You have the Holy Spirit, okay? So do you think that demons can be voices in your head, or do you think all voices in your head are psychotic episodes? I'm not giving answers yet from my perspective. I know, but y'all are, y'all are good. That's good. That's a good question. It's something we'll talk about. Yeah. Yeah. What's interesting is, as Baptists, we don't talk about this a lot. Right? I mean... My guess is it's been a long time since you had a pastor stand up and do a... I know it's been at least four years. So it's probably been longer than that, I would guess, since you had a pastor stand up and say, let's talk about whether or not a Christian can be demon-possessed. I mean, we've talked about spiritual warfare, but that... I mean, this is an essence of a part of spiritual warfare, but even the spiritual warfare we make into something that doesn't get as real as what we're talking about here. Um. Part of it is because we live in a country that doesn't see it very much. You don't walk down the street and Linda Blair's head's spinning around. You don't um, have things that happen that make you kind of question. And part of that may be that the stuff's not kind of happening as much around here. Part of it may be we're just not looking for it as much. Anybody else want to chime in? Go ahead, Sylvia. No, I know Southern Baptists who have. Sylvia. And and here's the thing. We, we have to, I think as believers, we have to be honest with what the Scripture says, too. Sylvia just said sometimes you have to be careful because sometimes people kind of begin to delve into it too much. And then as they delve into it, they become almost fascinated with it. And you can go too far in that direction. And as believers, we have to be honest with what the Bible says. And the truth is, there are people that go to extremes that see the demon around every corner and are doing exorcisms every couple of days. And then there are people like us a lot of times that we it doesn't even really cross our mind unless a preacher brings it up or we see a story on Nightline about the Catholic Church's, which is true, the Catholic Church has just kind of reinstituted exorcism according to them, but they never took it away. They just kind of somebody was doing a story and go, hey, I think they're still doing exorcisms. And so when you look, and the issue is when you look biblically, as we talked about last week, Jesus does this. And he walks up to people and says, demon, get out. And there are really only a couple of ways you can explain that. 
One is you don't believe that that really happened. That this, the Bible's kind of been a myth that's been passed down, and well, that didn't really happen. We know better now. We know that that stuff doesn't happen. Kind of in the middle of that is, well, maybe it happened then, but that doesn't happen now. And the third is to say, well, God says he's the same today, yesterday, and forever. Scripture proclaims truth that is always true. Jesus has not returned again, or if he has, we got lots of issues we got to discuss. And so it is ongoing. And if it's ongoing, then the question becomes, okay, so what does that mean for us today? And for what we're talking about tonight, what does that mean for a believer in Christ? Part of the issue is something a couple of you brought up is the word possession. Okay? If I just, we're not in church, we're not talking about demons, we're not talking about any of that, and I just said, Tell me what a possession is. What would you tell me? Your lawnmower. Why is it that's your possession? That's yeah. What does that mean? It means you. It's yours. That you own it. You control it. You take. I have a Toyota Camry in the parking lot. It is mine. Okay, I own it. it in fact, the bank doesn't own it because I have paid it off. So it is mine. Good, bad, better, worse. It's mine. Okay, and until I sell it and sign a title to somebody else. Or drive it to the scrap heap when I've driven the wheels off of it. It's mine. Now, here's what I mean by I possess the car. It does whatever I tell it to do. If I went out there right now and it was driving around the parking lot by itself, I'd have some questions, wouldn't right? I would say it's possessed by something other than me, right? I have lost control. And so the word possession to us means ownership. It means um, property. The issue is possession, It's the word possession is never in the New Testament. There's no word that's translated like a possession that is in the New Testament. When it describes people in their encounters with demons, it uses a word that, demonzii, okay, which means something of demons. And so it'll say this person was demonzii. And for the last few hundred years, when they translate that into English, they can't come up with a way to describe it, so they just they started a lot of time ago saying demon-possessed. And so people then ascribed what we think of possessed to that word, even though that's just our attempt to say it. A better understanding of it is not demon possession, but it was a lot of the more modern uh, translations. In fact, I was I've got some of them here. If you look at older translations, um, like the King James Matthew eight sixteen, for instance, where that word is used, the King James version, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. Uh, New King James, they brought to me many who were demon possessed. New American Standard, they were brought to him were many demon-possessed. New International, the 1984 version, many who were demon-possessed. And that's that word, demonzia. Now, if you look at more modern, uh, you get a different understanding because we've become to understand when we've looked at that word, there's nothing like it in our language. So you have many people with demons. 
people brought to Jesus who had demons in them or a lot of demon-afflicted people. And so the question takes on a different understanding when we understand that word differently. If you ask me, Pastor, can a can Satan or a demon claim ownership of a believer in Jesus Christ, a true believer in Jesus Christ? My answer is absolutely not. Because when we give our lives to Jesus, we are his. Okay? We belong to him. We are called his inheritance, his children. With Jesus, we're co-heirs. It tells us in Romans chapter 8 that once that happens, that neither height nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, principalities, things in the earth, things in the air, nothing can separate us from the love of God. And so if the question is, Pastor, can is there any way that a believer in Jesus Christ can be owned by Satan? My answer is absolutely not. That does not happen. But if the question is, can a believer in Jesus Christ be significantly and profoundly influenced by a demon? The answer is absolutely yes. And the problem is, we sometimes use the semantics of the word possession to make us think we're perfectly okay from a lot of influence from the evil one. Well, a Christian can't be possessed, so I ain't got to worry about that. Christian, demon possession doesn't happen to believers, so I'm a believer, so I don't even have to concern myself with that. But Scripture teaches that even as believers, we can be influenced and give over part of our lives even unto the evil one. All right? So that's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at a few places, but just some... Reminders. I used a couple of these verses. If you want to write them down about Christians cannot be owned by Satan. Uh, Romans 5.1 tells us that we are legally acquitted by God and it's done. Colossians 1.13 says that we have been transferred from the domain of Satan into the kingdom of God. Um, Ephesians 1.8 tells us that the Father views us as his own precious inheritance. Ephesians 1.13 tells us that we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. Romans 8, 16, and 17 says that the Spirit brings us into the family of God, bringing upon us the irrevocable status of being children of God. Okay? So that's in there. In fact, there's this little passage in um, it's a parable told in all three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's in Matthew 12, 29, Mark 3, 27, Luke 11, 21, where Jesus says this, How can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can rob the house. Okay, And so we uh, the idea there is that Jesus is, this is strange to think about for a minute, but it's the way he put it. Jesus is like the one coming into the house to take something. And Satan is the strong man. And Jesus says, when I come into your house, I bind him. And remove him so that I can have ownership here. Okay? So he's saying if you've still got Satan in your life, that, that's a problem. So we've got that. And then the verses that I used, uh, Romans 8, 38, 39, I'm convinced that neither life, death nor life, angels nor demons, present nor future, powers, height, depth, 
nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if the question is, can a believer be owned by Satan? The answer is no. Okay? They say, well, a second argument sometimes people use is, okay, well, I don't believe they can have real influence because Scripture says we are the temple of God and no evil can exist in the temple of God. Okay? Uh, I've heard that argument before. Maybe you haven't, but I've read some things, heard it. As long as you're the temple of God, nothing evil like that can can live there. The problem is, Scripture teaches us that sin still dwells in our lives, right? I mean, in fact, John says, if you say you haven't sinned, then you made God a liar. So there's still sin in our lives. So it's not like when we become the temple of God, everything gets flushed out. And so if sin can be there, then that argument kind of falls by the wayside that nothing can be there. Um, Secondly, and we're going to talk about this passage a little bit more in a minute, Paul says that we have the ability to give the devil a foothold in our lives. It's the word he uses. And so the implication there is it is a spatial term. Okay, That means land. That means part of you. And so um, Paul is saying that we can give over part of our lives, even as believers, to the evil one. Then there's the whole thing about the temple of God. And I realize in the New Testament we have a realized, inaugurated kingdom of God temple concept. But in the Old Testament, if you say the temple of God never had evil stuff in it, then you're just wrong. Because they had evil stuff in there all the time. Kings brought other totem poles and gods into there. So things existed there. Doesn't mean they were supposed to, or it was good that they did, but they did. Um, it's kind of an interesting debate. And so here's what's happened recently. Back in the 50s, this, that's not recently, but I mean, for some of you think, yes, it was. Don't say it wasn't recently in the 50s. But back in the 50s, there was a guy named Merrill Unger. Doesn't that sound like a good name, Merrill Unger? Um I was reading some stuff today, and I kept going. They kept going back and forth, referring to Merrill Unger and Robert Boyd Munger, and I kept getting Merrill Unger and Boyd Unger Munger messed up. But Merrill Unger was a guy that still, when I was in college and seminary, we read his stuff. He was a New Testament scholar. He wrote all this stuff, and he came out in 1952 and said there is no way that Christians can be inhabited by demons. And because he was such a scholar and well thought of. It got published and reprinted and requoted, and everywhere you went, well, Unger says. 20 years later, he came back and said, I was wrong. He'd been on the mission field, and he'd seen people he was convinced were believers. And he said, but they're showing all of the characteristics of being under the influence of demons. Like, I've had conversations, and maybe maybe not on a scale of, I mean, I don't want you to get in your mind that to be demon-possessed, you've got to be throwing things all over the wall and spinning your head around and all of that. Maybe you've known somebody that, I mean, you could, they're, they're believers. I mean, I know it. I've heard their testimony. I've seen them walk with the Lord. I've talked to them about what they're doing. And then an event happens in their lives, and anger kind of begins to dwell well up, and resentment and bitterness. And before long, they, they were really strong 
leaders in the church, and they're just not coming much anymore. And then you notice it's not just that they're not coming some, they're not coming at all. And then you run into them, and they've got a surly look on their face, and you realize they've become depressed and not fun to be around. And What happened to them? I've only been a pastor 10 years, but in my 10 years I've dealt with people that... um, have good conversations about their faith, they're walking the Lord, and then two years later I meet them, and it's like they're walking down a different path completely. I, I can think in my mind about five people right now that I had meaningful, deep, spiritual, not head conversations, but heart conversations with in Brazil on a mission trip. And then three years later, they're not even in church anyway. I'm not talking about teenagers that went on. I got to, you know, I'm talking about strong church leaders. And you wonder, well, what happened there? And Merrill Unger went on the mission field. And he started seeing all these things happen, and he came back. And so he he wrote that, and people said, well, that can't happen because you can't, Satan can't own somebody that's a believer. And he said, well, you're right. I mean, maybe we need to change the word. Maybe that's not a good. Maybe possession's not a good word. He he said, all I know is that they demonstrate that they have given a good portion of their lives over to the enemy. So there's this camp now that won't use the word demon possession because it implies and we joked a little bit about Linda Blair and that head spinning and all that but these are scholars that say we can't use that word because when we use that word the first thing people think of is the exorcist movie and that's not what we want. And so, just so you'll know, be on the cutting edge here, the new word is demonization. Okay? And what they would say is that's the difference between possession and demonization is what I have said. That it's the difference between somebody who is owned by Satan as possession. That can't be a believer. And demonization is somebody that is significantly influenced by the evil one. And so they began to look at Scripture and say, okay, I mean, that sounds good, but what's the kind of background there? you got your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew, James, Ephesians. It's Bible drill. Let's go, Matthew, James, Ephesians. Let's go. Ephesians 4. We'll be in James before we're done. And we've already been in Matthew, so I'm just giving you the... Synopsis is what I'm doing. Ephesians 4. In your anger, do not sin. By the way, do you you realize that there is a part of your body that when you've had enough, it is your anger gland? That's not the technical term. But it's one of your glands, and it controls your anger. And when you get fed up enough, and you, you ever heard the phrase, I just had enough and I snapped? It's your snap gland, all right? So a couple of weeks ago, Susan and Maddie were out doing something. I'm in the kitchen. I'm trying to get the dishes from the sink into the dishwasher before Susan gets back, trying to be a good husband, trying to be loving towards my wife, serve her. And Eli comes in, I need a peanut butter sandwich. I need a peanut butter sandwich. And... uh I say, well, fix your peanut butter sandwich. And so, because he's at that age, he can do that. And he goes, well, I can't find the peanut butter. And, you know, I mean, 
you know, and then Luke comes in. What are you doing? And they start talking. And then Luke runs out of the runs out of the room, not walks casually. Eli drops the knife on the ground. He gets peanut butter on the floor. There's things happening over there. Luke comes in and just throws a ball at Eli's head for no apparent reason. They're brothers. That kind of stuff happens. Uh, Eli gets mad, yells at his brother. Luke, stop that. Luke trips on the way out the kitchen, falls down, starts screaming. Eli's crying. Luke's crying. And I snapped. There you go. Am I you with me, Jimbo? All right, good. Yeah. <laughs> so, so what Ephesians says is, in your anger, don't let your snap gland take over. All right? But then it says this. And if it does, basically, don't let the sun go down while you're angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Here's what foothold means there. All right? It means space. This is how it's used in the rest of uh, Scripture. Same word, tapos. Don't give the devil a tapos, okay? Mary and Joseph laid Jesus in a manger because there was no tapos for them in the end. No room or space. A seat at a table in Luke 14.9 is referred to as a tapas or a space. A city or a village could be spoken of as a tapas. Jesus said that he had gone to prepare a tapas for us. In a proverbial form, Jesus said in Luke 11, when an evil spirit comes out of the man, it goes through arid tapas or places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to a house I've left. In the book of Revelation, after Satan and his forces are defeated at the war in heaven, there is no longer any place for them there. So the word there means place, area. Okay? And the idea that I get when I read this and I look throughout and try to figure out what it's talking about, um, the idea I get is almost in a military conquest. And I think about the movies and stories and things that I've read about the D-Day invasion of Normandy. Now, I'm not a World War II scholar. It fascinates me. I've read some stuff. But from what I can tell, at that moment, it was a bleak moment for the Allies in the war. Hitler was running through Europe. We weren't making any progress. It didn't look like the war was going to go our way. It appeared as if Hitler had a chance for world domination like he wanted. And we devised this plan that we were going to storm Normandy Beach with the biggest force ever. And when we got there, it was going to be our beachhead, our jumping off point, our place, our tapas that we were going to use to fight from. And the victory that day was not necessarily about the amount of land we had. It was about the fact that we had gotten a foothold in the European theater. And what the scripture says here is that as believers, it is possible for us. And the example he uses here is anger. But don't mistake to say, well, I'm not angry tonight, so I am perfectly fine. That if we allow sin into our lives, 
and we're not quick to confess and quick to get past, then it's like we're allowing Satan to have a point of operations to begin attacking other areas of our lives. In another place, there's this idea that we can allow evil to even reign in the life of a believer. Now, in case we don't believe that, Romans 6, 12, Paul says to the Romans. Now, who are the Romans? Who is he writing to there? The obvious answer is people that live where? Rome. There you go. That's good. So people live in Rome. Now, let me ask you this. Were they believers or non-believers? Is he writing to the church? He's writing to a church, okay? And he says in Romans 6, 12, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Um, Paul viewed sin as an incredibly powerful evil force that not only, that once held believers in slavery and apart from God, and it doesn't vanish when you become a Christian. It repeatedly attempts to reassert its control. In fact, Paul uses the term for reign. It, it's a term that is a strong word. It is the same term Jesus says that he is doing, is setting out to establish a reign of God, a kingdom of God, and that he will exercise his reign in it. Now, we have to understand, Paul's not just making an argument to make an argument, go, oh, be careful about this. You never know about, you know. He wants them to be aware that if we allow it, Sin and evil can have real force in the life of a believer. Now, there's even this discussion in Acts 19, and I'm going to let you in on a little Ph.D.-level discussion, okay? I don't have my Ph.D. yet, so you're as qualified as I am to have it. The last seminar I was in, we got into discussion about whether or not all the demons... Some of you are going to cringe that your Southern Baptist seminaries are talking about this. Whether all the demons had to be expelled from a person before they could hear and receive and accept the gospel of Jesus Christ. The person that began the discussion and asked that initial question was a brilliant young man from Goodlettsville, Tennessee, who is your pastor. And the reason I ask it was because we had just had somebody kind of dismiss the idea that demons were kind of still active. And I'd had a conversation at lunch with a guy that was in the class who was the IMB field coordinator for West Africa who in the last six months has seen significant demon activity in the lives of people he's evangelizing. And somebody said, well, let's talk about Acts 19. If you got your Bible, Gene, turn over there. And Luke's 19 is an I mean, Acts 19 is an interesting place. Luke wrote it, but it's Acts 19. During Paul's three-year ministry in Ephesus, God did some amazing things. Now, Paul didn't stay places three years long. In fact, in, in Acts 19, it tells us that uh, there was healings and exorcisms down in 11 and 12. And even to the point, you ever heard of prayer cloths? You ever heard a TV preacher tell me, just send me your cloth and I'll bless it and send it back or send me $4,000 and I'll send you a handkerchief I have blessed and send it back to you or prayer cloths, okay? This is where they get it from. Paul, Luke says that Paul 
Even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Okay? Now, when you read that, a lot of us just quickly assume, man, he is casting out demons and he is sharing Jesus. Save, getting those people saved after the demons get out. But Luke tells us that the exorcism ministry of Paul immediately after, that as soon as that happened, that all the people began to hear of it. There was a massive turning to Christ during the cities. Uh, Paul's extensive many, many house churches were formed. Um, Ephesus was famous in antiquity for being the center of practice of magic and witchcraft and sorcery. Ephesus was like the leading place for all of that. It was out of that context that suddenly these people start coming to Christ. So you've got these, I mean, if you can imagine, uh, the vilest people you can imagine start showing up at church, getting saved. Witches and warlocks and practicer, people that practice dark magic or even people of... Um, notoriety, uh, not in a good way. Uh, they're, they're infamous, not famous for their criminal behavior. Start showing up. Many of these new believers apparently did not immediately renounce their ways. God directly intervened on a dramatic way to bring conviction to them through the notorious failed exorcism by a Jewish exorcist named Siva. Then Luke says in verse 18, Many of those who believed. Now, here's the thing that's interesting about that. That word means who had already believed. Not this is new belief. This is they believed earlier. Now came and openly confessed their evil deeds. The result was a massive ceremony of renunciation involving the burning of 50,000 days wages of magical paper. They were Christians burning occultic texts. Now, here's where all that comes from while we're saying all that. There is this sense that when the Holy Spirit comes into our lives, yes, it is an immediate transformation. We are immediately justified before the Lord. But that doesn't mean that every area of our life is swept clean immediately. There is a, now, If you were to die today and you went to heaven... There would be immediate justification. You, God would look as you if you had never sinned. But we have this thing in the church we call sanctification that is just more than a word that sounds good when you say it in a preacher's voice. All right? It means that part of our lives on earth is to become more and more like Jesus. If every area of our life is swept clean immediately, I'm not talking about from God's view whether or not we still have sin that is unforgiven. I'm just talking about practically. If everything is wiped clean immediately, then we don't have any work to do or any path to follow to become more like Jesus. Does that make sense? And so to immediately think that everything just got wiped out is not the case. And so what Paul does here is he says it, he tells them all this stuff is bad, and then he expects them to follow through. And so, we don't have any evidence in the New Testament of Paul exercising demons from believers. But we definitely have this idea that we're not complete when we're saved. And even though Paul didn't use the word demonization or 
having a demon to describe the experience of a Christian here, the idea is that some of those things were still in their lives. Those things that were attached to that. Because they didn't burn the stuff till later. It's kind of like a, um, when I was growing up, the big thing that we don't even have tapes anymore. I know what you do. When I was growing up, once you, we had people that go to camp every year, and after they'd be at camp for a week, they'd come home and burn their musical tapes or their CDs. Okay, we don't need to be listening to that stuff. We're gonna burn it. Now I don't know what you do. I guess you wipe your hard drive. I don't. They don't have that, or you know, take the music off your iPod. It doesn't seem as dramatic as having a bonfire with tapes and records. All right. Um, but that's what they did. They brought other stuff out, and they kind of kind of did this. And so in the Bible, what we see is these examples of, if we're not careful, we can allow Satan to, to still hold on to part of who we are in the direction we're going. I mean, Paul will tell Timothy in 1 Timothy 4 not to follow deceiving spirits. He'll tell him in 2 Timothy chapter 2 that, that the evil one wants to, to take captive believers to do his will. He said that... that Paul advises Timothy on how to minister effectively to a believer whom Satan has taken captive. Almost like you're a prisoner of war. Those who oppose him must gently instruct in the hope of God will grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth and that they will come to their senses and escape from the trap of the devil and was taken them captive to do his will. That's pretty strong language. Paul tells us that First um, Peter 5, 8 says, uh, the, some of you know this, that Satan is like a roaring lion looking for whom he may. Yeah, devour is not a good translation, but that's what we've learned it as. The better translation of that is whom he may intimidate. The idea is that one of the most intimidating things on earth is the roar of a lion. I've never been in the wild and experienced the roar of a lion, and I have no desire to do so. I watched a show a couple of years ago about a guy that was going to live with the lions. And he went out in the uh, bush with them, and he was, he was, you know, he tried to get close. And, and the only way that he could kind of assert who he was was when they roared, he roared back. So the picture in First Peter is of Satan looking for whom he can intimidate. And that when we cower and feel fear, he pounces. So how do we deal with it? All right, we got two minutes. We can follow, we can do that right real quick. Let me give you some two things. They both come from James chapter four, verse seven. The first thing that we do is when we begin to feel kind of the influence, or we feel our lives being influenced away from the Lord, is that we must draw near to God. In James chapter four, verse seven, it says this. Submit yourselves then to God, resist the devil, and he will flee. Now, here's the thing that is at the beginning of that, and that is the word submit or surrender. It means you give up control and you come back to the Lord and you say, no matter what I've messed up or how I've walked away, I'm tired of it, I want to surrender. Now, here's the issue for us. We don't like to give up control in any situation. I've been one of the things that I do for the Brazil team every year, and even though I'm not going, I did again this year. Is I write a devotional for them for the week. They read a book, and I write a devotional. And so um, I always get that done at least six weeks in advance, right, Deborah? No, I finished it today. All right, and so 
And that, I finished it today, and that is the earliest I've ever finished it before a Brazil trip, okay? But one of the things that I write about in there is this idea of submitting unto the Lord, surrendering unto Him. And I tell a quick story in there, and I'll tell you. I can still remember the first time my brother ever drove a vehicle. Ryan's five and a half years older than me. We were going to visit my cousins. They didn't live on a farm, but they lived on a road where a farm was, you know, just out in the country somewhere. And um, They knew the guy that, that farmed around them, and they had a little plot of land. They had a little tapas, a little place. Okay, So we get we turn onto their dirt gravel road. My brother's 14 years old. I'm nine. I'm about a little older maybe than Eli. And Dad stops the car, puts it in park, jumps out, and he called Brian Brutus. That was just his name. Brutus, jump on over and drive. And I was not a back talker. I was not one that questioned my parents a lot. But I began to ask several questions at that moment about the wisdom of this decision. Now, whether or not Dad was making a wise choice, you realize your nine-year-old son is in the vehicle with you right now. And what would mom think if something were to happen to me right now? You know, I was a good negotiator at nine, all right? And all I remember is, as long as my dad was driving, I, I was okay. But I didn't like giving control up to my brother. And so when my brother got behind the wheel, I literally got in the fetal position in the floorboard. That was before the days you had to have booster seats and seat belts on and all that. And so I was in the floorboard in the fetal position just praying that we were going to make it to Uncle Phil's house quickly, but not too quickly, all right? Why? Because I didn't, I was okay as long as Dad was in control. I wasn't okay when Brian was. We care a lot about who's in control of our lives. And when things begin to kind of falter in our lives or when our attitudes begin to come out that we don't intend to or when stuff happens to us and we begin to react in ways that we don't normally react, when that uh, snap instinct starts happening much more quickly than we intend for it to. It's time to begin to submit unto the Lord. Sylvia is right. There are a lot of people that then begin to focus on the enemy. And when you focus on the enemy, you start going down a road that you don't need to go down. You surrender unto Him. Then, it says, after you surrendered unto the Lord, you resist the devil. It's a two-part process. You look for, where did he get a foothold? Maybe it was you didn't know you let him in. Maybe it was, you know, um, something that just kind of happened. You, you were unaware. You weren't watching as closely as you should have. And suddenly you find yourself in a situation where there's something on TV that shouldn't be there. Or you find yourself in a situation where you're tempted to get angry. You're tempted... Um, in ways that you didn't intend. It just happened. But you need to recognize that. Or perhaps there are things in your family. Somebody mentioned things that kind of, that, that was what your dad did, and that's what your dad's dad did. That's part of your family. Well, um, there, there is this concept in Scripture, not of necessarily generational curses, but this genetic makeup that predisposes us to certain failures and issues. My grandfather, after World War II, was a raging alcoholic. I mean, my dad talks about being in bars at six and seven with my mom, with his mom and dad. I never knew my grandfather because he passed away before I was born, mainly because he drank himself to death. I don't know whether or not if I 
went out and drank three beers, I'd end up an alcoholic. But I know that may be part of my family kind of lineage. And so that's an easy for me to talk about because that's something I don't experience on a daily basis. But there are also things that I know just from knowing my dad and my mom and my grandparents that they were susceptible to and call it personality similarities, call it genetics, whatever it is. It's kind of been passed down to me, and I'm susceptible to those kind of things. Um, my mom's side of the family has a strong desire to be thought of and respected and liked, even if that means sometimes compromising what you really believe. And those aren't bad people. They're great people. But I realize that that could be, and so you recognize that in your life. And then you begin to pray. You make sure you're a part of a good group of people that can challenge you when you start coming in and they say, how are you doing? <clears throat> I'm not good. Well, maybe you're not doing good, but if that becomes what you say every th- every time you come in, we got issues, okay? Make sure you're plugged into a church and you spend time in the Word. Miss um, Eleanor was right. The longer you spend in the Word, the more you're going to be prepared for whatever comes. Um, but the key to all that is to draw near to God, not to focus on the enemy, recognize the presence, but to draw near to God. Okay, And so it's one of those things where we have got to be consistently looking to Him. And you need to ask yourself on a regular basis, have I moved from my place of intimacy with the Lord? Um, I tell the story, I told it at 4 o'clock, I tell it a lot. The story of an older couple driving in a truck through town and they pull up at a red light behind a young couple and the young couple are sitting on top of each other. And the wife looks over at the husband and said, why aren't we like that anymore? And the husband, just in his dry sense of humor, looks at her and says, honey, I ain't the one that moved. All right. Sometimes we find ourselves at a place and we think to ourselves, we think to ourselves, what happened to, to my relationship with the Lord? You know, I mean, six months ago, I seemed to be hit, kind of hitting on all cylinders. I, it, 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 my prayer life felt good and my, my scripture reading. And the Lord looks at us sometimes and says, I'm not the one that's moved here. Perhaps there are things in my life that I need to kind of get rid of and begin that process back to drawing near to Him. So the question of the night, can Christian be demon-possessed? If you mean can they be owned by Satan, the answer is no. Does it mean they can be significantly, profoundly influenced? Yes. And that means be on your guard at all times.